medicalization is great for some people in certain contexts. Because we live in the United States, because our healthcare system is so confusing and convoluted and in some ways really unjust, that means that even if we do legalize it medically through a formal FDA-approved medical prescription system, that doesn't mean that everyone who could benefit is going to get access. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Ismail Ali, Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. He's a founding board member of the Psychedelic Bar Association and presently serves on the board of directors for Sage Institute. Together, we talked about the remaining legal hurdles before MDMA-assisted therapy is FDA-approved, why state legislatures are beginning to experiment with psychedelic policy, why the DEA just proposed adding five more psychedelics to the list of Schedule I controlled substances, and so much more. We'll get to that in just a second, but first, coming soon at Esalen, journey through the shockers with sacred sound and wonder. This is March 21st to March 25th, and it's taught by Deva Mune. Celebrate the first week of spring as we find connection, levity, and light through the alchemy of crystal singing bowls and sound healing. Learn the science and the magic and apply innovative sound healing techniques to your daily life. Restore your balance and connectivity to yourself and the world around you. Highly recommend it. Deva is so awesome. Now here's my conversation with Ismail Ali. Just to begin this interview, for the benefit of those who may not have been uh, familiar with the last one, could you talk a little bit about MAPS and the purpose and goals of the organization, and, and as well as your role there? Yeah, totally. So I, um, I'm currently the, the Director of Policy and Advocacy at MAPS, um, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that was founded in 1986 with the intention of creating context within medicine, uh, culture, and other environments to make space for the safe and responsible use of psychedelics for personal healing or personal growth, spirituality, and so on. So we've been around for about 35, 36 years. Our kind of flagship project, the one that's probably getting the most attention right now is uh, taking MDMA, the active ingredient in ecstasy through the FDA approval process with the intention of having it approved as a prescription medication for the treatment of PTSD as an adjunct to therapy. And I think that last part is important because with all the media happening around psychedelics these days, there's a little bit of a silver bullet effect or silver bullet kind of sense. And um, one thing that MAPS is really committed to is actually demystifying that and helping people understand, well, what is the good, the bad, and the ugly? Um, what's the whole picture here? So MAPS has really been an educational research institution that has you know, really, I think, been part of this narrative around psychedelics for the last few decades. All right. Well, let's jump right in and, and, and find out about the, the mission of, of medicalizing yeah. MDMA. So it, as far as I understand, MDMA-assisted therapy is on track to be approved by FDA in 2023. Talk to me about how this process is going and what the remaining legal hurdles are in the path, if any. That's certainly the hope. So essentially, the FDA process is a three-phase process where, it's, where you have to submit data that demonstrates safety, efficacy, dose tolerance, and a few other topics. By the time you're at the point where we're at, which is about halfway through our second phase three study, um, you've essentially established safety of a substance. You've figured out what doses work for which kind of effects. And you're really just, you're kind of try trying to demonstrate the efficacy. Does it work for the indication you're saying that it works? So we had a really successful first phase three study that the results of which were published in Nature Medicine, I want to say in May of last year, maybe or so, um, May of 2021, and are in the process of finalizing the second phase three study. Over the last few years, a few big milestones that have occurred, probably the most significant being the breakthrough therapy designation, which is essentially 
kind of a vote of confidence from FDA saying, hey, this medicine that's currently under investigation has a significantly better effect than other currently available medications for disorders or issues that are particularly hard to treat. Uh, so that's an exciting kind of piece of news. And I think psilocybin also got a similar designation for a different indication also around the same timeline. The other big significant thing to probably mention is that we went through a formal dispute resolution process with FDA over the course of the last couple of years, primarily focused on the qualifications of the facilitators who are permitted to offer, offer psychedelic therapy or MDMA therapy specifically. Um, in our phase two study, we had permission we were granted permission to utilize two, it's a two therapist team, one or two practitioner team, really, I should say, because one of them is, must be a licensed therapist and have a board certification or license and so on. And the other can be a person in training. So maybe they're a student, someone who has, I believe the minimum is a thousand hours of behavioral health experience and who's gone through this MDMA therapy training. When we started our phase three trial, FDA actually requested that the standards for those two roles be raised up to MD PhDs or something comparable. As you can probably guess, having two MD PhDs instead of like a therapist and a trainee or a student or someone who's kind of similarly situated means that the cost goes up. It's much more difficult to find practitioners and a number of other issues come up. So we went through this ongoing, this long process with FDA and eventually secured permission for a phase three study to include that same original co-therapy team, as well as importantly, um, an experiential component for the training. That's one of those kind of newer edges where while in other types of psychological therapy approaches like uh, psychoanalytic therapy, for example, it's not unusual for the practitioner to experience the modality themselves as part of their training. That issue is a little bit complicated with drugs that are scheduled, whether it's MDMA, which is schedule one, or even something like ketamine, which is schedule three, but there's really no formal official way to incorporate experiential training into that mechanism um, unless you have FDA permission, permission through a protocol. So that was really the approach that we took where we were like, it's really critical for facilitators to have experience with the medicine if possible. Um, of course, there's reasons that that isn't possible in certain cases, heart issues and age and a few other things that we consider. Um, so it's not absolutely mandatory. It's just encouraged. Um, but we wanted to make sure that people could do it legally. We didn't want people to have to be forced to go into the underground to have an experience that we knew would probably benefit them. And now there's a big ethical question around, well, must, must facilitators have experience or not? I think it's a good question with a lot of directions you can take, but that's kind of the, the, the gist of where things are at. And we're hoping, like you said, I think the current timeline is hoping to end, uh, to finish the second phase three study uh, sometime by the fall of this year. And then with the intention of submitting the application to FDA at some point next year, and then there'll be a timeline to basically we'll be presenting, I think to your last question, what's the big uh, legal hurdle. And I think one of the big ones is going to be that we'll be presenting what's called an eight factor analysis. Uh, which is basically the metric that DEA utilizes, and I think FDA also utilizes to figure out which schedule the drug will end up in. So even if FDA has a determination that the drug has medical value, that requires it to be pulled out of Schedule 1, because Schedule 1 has a requirement that has no demonstrated medical value, but we don't know whether the drug will end up in 2, 3, or 4, so we have to make that case, build that out, and kind of go in that back and forth still to figure out where it lands ultimately. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the, the process that surrounds rescheduling drugs. I mean, have um, any drugs famously been rescheduled? The short answer is sort of no. So this brings us into this category called bifurcated scheduling, which is my favorite topic right now, sort of, not really. Um, the, the, the 
Control Substances Act operates under this sort of framework that places drugs on a schedule based on these certain metrics, right? There's the effect or there's a few other a few other considerations there. The confusing thing is that there are substances um, that exist on multiple schedules at the same time. So Xyrem is, for example, a prescription drug that's made with GHB, which is a highly controlled substance. So GHB by itself as a drug is in schedule one, but Xyrem is in schedule three. They're the exact same drug with different formulations and different controls but they end up in different places. You see a similar example with Epidiolex and Marinol, which are CBD and THC derived drugs respectively, and cannabis, where you have, I'm actually not sure off the top of my head where Marinol is, it might be schedule three or four, but I think Epidiolex is schedule five. It's like an uh, epilepsy medication. Both of those are derived from products that come from cannabis, but cannabis itself doesn't have medical value, so it stays in schedule one. Of course, at this point, we kind of know that's a fiction and we need to figure out how to change that. But yeah, that there hasn't been a drug that has exclusively contained only like the entirety of a molecule that's currently in schedule one that will also exist in a different schedule. So we're going through this process now of figuring out, okay, how do we make sure that this does not get confusing down the line on the prescription side? Because doctors, normal doctors and prescribers cannot just prescribe schedule one drugs. You have to get a very special research license to do investigations which means that we need to figure out a way to ensure that the drug product, the thing that's approved by FDA, ends up on the schedule we're hoping for, and also states follow that so then they can actually prescribe so people don't get stuck in this kind of prohibition limbo where we have an approved drug, but because it's made out of an illegal thing, they can't use it. So trying to solve all that right now. Well, tell me a little bit about the cannabis model, because from many state perspective, cannabis has been, I don't know if this is the right word, but legalized. I mean, you can go into a recreational a dispensary and just get cannabis. How is that possible if it's a schedule one drug? Yeah. So all of those states are breaking federal law. Um, that's the short answer. So states, because of federalism, cooperative federalism, because the states can and do pass laws, you know, about certain things on their own, while generally enforcement of drug laws falls on the states. Um, there's some drug law and drug enforcement that happens at the federal level, most of things regarding the borders and international and interstate trafficking. But things that happen within a state themselves have you know, there's the states have the authority to regulate that on their own. It's a little bit confusing because medical marijuana was a track that was taken independently of FDA. So I would put medical in quotes, not because I don't think it's medical, because I certainly absolutely believe that cannabis and its derivatives have a tremendous amount of medical value. But in the US, the only the only entity that can determine whether or not something has medical value to the DEA, according to their kind of standards, is the FDA. So if the FDA itself hasn't said, this has medical value, then you could have a gajillion papers. And this is, we actually saw this, a similar process go through this with WHO at the UN, because who, who decides what's legit research is a very political question. And these states have said, okay, we're going to actually make the determination first that medical marijuana is permitted. And then, you're, as you said, in a number of states, legalized adult use is permitted. In the early days of Obama's second term, a memo was published by the Attorney General James Cole, basically saying that the federal government would no longer spend resources on enforcing cannabis laws in states that have their own regulated system. That was repealed during the Trump administration, but we're now kind of in this place where the federal government tends to stay out of the way when it comes to state level efforts. For the last few years, enforcement has really significantly dropped, which is which is notable because even though President Obama at the time said that it would have dropped, it actually took this memo from the AG for there actually to be an interruption because lots of enforcement actions continue to happen. So to your kind of to your question, 
we're now in this place where can psychedelics or states that pass regulated systems for psychedelics fall under that same protection? And technically the answer is no so far, but we are seeing a desire from, for example, regulators in Oregon and certainly advocates in other states that are working on state reform to want to be in a cooperative relationship with the federal government. I don't think anyone wants to like put a target on their back and say like, come get us, you know, like maybe some people do, but for the most part, I think these states want to pass these like rational regulatory systems that show, okay, we can try this experiment at this level. We're going to see how it works. And that's really like the theory behind the cannabis stuff as well. So Ismail, you're really like anticipating some of my questions here because recently there's been a shift. I mean, most of the activity in laws governing psychedelics have been at a federal level, but recently we're seeing a shift to state legislatures amending psychedelic laws. Why is this? So there's a few factors that kind of went into that. I would say the biggest one, practically speaking, would be the passage of Measure 109 in the state of Oregon in November 2020. That was an, a voter-led initiative that was really just focused on the creation of a psilocybin services framework, like you could say an adult use regulated psilocybin services framework within the state of Oregon. I'm really grateful that it passed simultaneously to Measure 110, which fully decriminalized the personal use of all drugs in the state of Oregon. And as you may have seen in the news, um, also released uh, almost $300 million into the Oregon kind of treatment and drug recovery system, which I think is really valuable. While there's plenty of valid critiques about the way the recovery system currently operates, it's no question that having more funds toward better treatment is probably a good thing. So I think that general that treatment, not jail approach that Oregon took with 110, plus this 109 effort, which kind of created the psilocybin services system, both showed, uh, and I should say 109 passed with 56% of the vote and 110 with 58, both kind of showed that while there had been kind of like whispers about it and some interest to bring in some of the more kind of radical or progressive policy reforms forward, it was really that point where it, it became clear that it was actually possible. It wasn't just kind of a dream that we could start doing state level reform, which I think people had hoped for for a while. So in the last two years, since that point, it's wild to think that it's been, I guess, I guess a year, you know, of I guess it's really actually only been a year and a few months, you know, we're in early spring 2022, which is wild timing. Um, but in that time, you've seen a huge increase in uh, organized efforts at the state level to attempt similar or comparable reforms. And I think that that's a big part of it. I think the other is just the reality that anyone looking seriously at the situation would be very surprised and maybe even skeptical about the possibility of federal, about the federal government, government moving on this issue. And because it's such a novel one, there's a sense that states should have the opportunity to experiment with different approaches. And I think that's a key piece here. And I think that's why we're not just seeing a huge interest in psychedelic reform at the state level. We're also seeing a huge diversity of the kind of efforts that people are bringing forward, depending on the political environment of a given state. I also think that people are getting a little bit impatient. I think that might be another element where people are, you know, aware that there's, you know, potential FDA approval coming, but still, you know, at least a few, a couple, maybe a few years away for, for uh, MDMA and psilocybin respectively, certainly longer for others. And there's a sense where not only is that far away, you know, it's maybe not relatively from 30 years ago when this effort started, but there's also the general concern that those efforts are moving toward is a medicalized system. And medicalization is great for some people in certain contexts. Because we live in the United States, because our healthcare system is so confusing and convoluted and in some ways really unjust, that means that even if we do legalize it medically through a formal FDA-approved medical prescription system, that doesn't mean that everyone who could benefit is going to get access. Even if we do get insurance coverage, which we're pushing for right now, 
that doesn't change the fact that a lot of people in the U.S. still don't have coverage. And it's still really expensive to spend hours and hours and hours with a therapist or a caretaker to provide psychological care. So in a best case scenario, we'd be passing universal health care and then incorporating psychedelic health care. And that, that would be just like the dream. But in the short term, I think the issue is how do we create these kind of like quasi you know, these quasi-medical or these regulated systems at the state level that allow people to start thinking about access in a more equitable way that maybe don't have the same barriers to entry as a formal medicalized healthcare system. Yeah, just to clarify, what does the the protocol look like for that MAPS is pushing forward with MDMA psychotherapy? Like how many sessions of psychotherapy are there? Yeah, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, the protocol itself is about 12 to 15 sessions, only about two or three of which are actually medicine assisted, you could say. So there's a number of fully sober, you could say, um, or non-altered normal sessions. So there's, I think, three preparatory sessions at the very beginning and three uh, integration sessions at the very end with sessions in between each of the actual kind of dose sessions as well. So you have, I think it ends up being something like 48 or 52 hours of therapy total, anywhere from assuming that each medicine session is six to eight hours, something like 18 to 24 hours of of medicine-assisted therapy within that larger block. And that ends up meaning that it looks and feels a little bit more like a procedure. Uh, I I kind of sometimes compare it a little bit more to um, psychological surgery, not because it's like so invasive necessarily, but because it's a short, concentrated intervention that has a lot of prep and post support. It's very different from the type of palliative kind of ongoing symptom management based care that's usually associated with psychological treatment. Um, that's not necessarily to be derisive, you know, toward the pharmaceutical, other pharmaceutical options. I think SSRIs and other things do work for some people, but they don't work for a lot also. So this approach is really less about managing symptoms over an extended period of time and like getting straight to the core of the problem or the core of the trauma or whatever it is that's being dealt with and then engaging very actively with that. It doesn't help you put up more boundaries that actually reduces your boundaries, but like in a safe environment where a person can really grapple with their thing and the therapy approach itself is is non-directive. So the approach is really about holding space so the person can kind of do therapy on themselves. You really just help them talk through and confront and acknowledge whatever it is that's kind of underlying a particular behavior issue and then supporting them in kind of, you could say like untying that knot and then afterward helping them figure out, okay, what does that untied knot mean for me? Maybe that means I like should start a morning routine or like should start journaling or like should say this really important thing to a family member who hurt me. You know, there's a lot of ways that people might follow up with that to like approach their own healing, but really importantly, what we found at least in our phase two trial that people actually reported qualified less for PTSD one year out for the treatment than even two months out, which is really unusual. It kind of shows that the treatment may actually give people momentum to make other changes in their lives, totally independent from the substance that then enhance or support their ability to kind of engage with their lives more actively and in a less uh, reactive sense. If and when MDMA is legalized, will it be available only for folks suffering from PTSD? Or is there some wiggle room for people with other presenting conditions? Yeah, this is a really good question that we get a lot. And we have to be really mindful about how we answer. The first thing to say is that because we're investigating PTSD specifically, the only thing that maps you know, upon prospective approval would be able to talk about or reference in our kind of public communications would have to be PTSD. 
Um, and that's par- partially because the FDA really strictly controls like marketing or dialogue around a drug or a substance that goes beyond what research actually shows it can do. And that's part of why FDA has such strict controls, which I think in the initial point, for, especially for substances that are considered new, I wouldn't consider MDMA a new substance, but it's new to the pharmaceutical world or would be at that point. Having that kind of like more conservative, like, no, we've only studied it for this thing, I think is really critical. It is true that within, I would say, uh, prescription in general, but certainly for mental health care, um, it's not unusual for drugs to be used in ways that are different from what's indicated necessarily. This is usually called something like off-label use. And probably the most relevant example right now is a drug like ketamine, which was approved as an anesthesia but is now being used quite extensively for depression treatment um, in a number of different formats. So basically our job as the sponsor as MAPS is to submit all the relevant data to FDA to develop a label that says, this is what the treatment is for. We don't have control and won't have control over how other, other practitioners themselves actually prescribe or utilize it. But there is absolutely this sense that we will have to be really mindful. We don't want to be advertising or marketing that it's good for all these other things. That said, there's a tremendous amount of concurrent research that's occurring. And while FDA does require its own process for every single officially designated indication, it's you can you know go on clinicaltrials.gov and see that MDMA is currently being used as, as an adjective therapy for a lot of other a lot of other things. And we ourselves are supporting studies that involve things like eating disorders, social anxiety for adults with autism, end of life anxiety, a few other things that are related to and maybe have underlying elements of trauma, but are not necessarily seen as like the same thing. Like I, I would argue, for example, that a lot of eating disorders are probably underlied by trauma, but because there isn't like a really explicit connection between eating disorders and PTSD, we can't say, oh, this is something you can use for that. It, it, it is being studied for that right now, but we as a sponsor have to be super careful and like really don't want to be giving the impression that like once it's on the market, it can be used for anything. And also practically speaking, like there's a lot of flexibility on the part of prescribers who are medical professionals who have their own kind of discretion on how the substance gets used. Of course, within reason, they can't just make anything up, but. Man, all this is so fascinating. It's a dance. The particular energy of, 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 and this is kind of what I referenced earlier, like most drugs, when they go through FDA, they're brand new. Like they've never been used, they were invented. And then they go through like a trial of like, you know, a few trials of a few hundred people and then they get approved or something. Um, and lots and lots of drugs fail that process. The difference with MDMA and other psychedelics and schedule one drugs that we know of is that MDMA is not a new drug. It's been around for decades and we have millions and millions and millions of anecdotal um, experiences that have been kind of shared throughout history over time. Um, so I just, that, I was just going to say that that that's an interesting difference that puts us in a position we're not really allowed to make broader claims in what the research shows, while also recognizing that there's a huge history of use that's independent from the specific medical use necessarily that also like has permeated popular culture, which means we have a sense of what are those actual risks, what are those potential benefits, how do we kind of sort through those things. Yes. And because that it's been around for a long time, there's stigma associated with MDMA. It, was, sure. the gay, it was the gay drug, you know, and mm-hmm. after that, it became like the raver drug. It's like the 19 year old son that you're ashamed of is like doing, <laughs> is, is doing MDMA with glow sticks. Like, ah, we can't let that happen. 
So I, I want to circle back to the the, the DEA yeah. now because I mm-hmm. just came across this headline recently that the DEA Drug Enforcement Administration proposed adding five more psychedelics to Schedule One controlled substances. I, I'd love to hear you talk about these tryptamines that are proposed here and what this could portend for DEA attitude towards psychedelics overall. This is a fascinating question because. So the first thing I'll say is I don't know too much about those specific substances. I'm familiar with them. I've heard of them. I've uh, not been around their use as much as I have with other substances, even prior to working with MAPS. Um, but I can speak to the second question, which is like, what does this kind of, what might this mean? Um, and a couple things. So first off, the process that DEA is going through with uh, these substances, including like 5-MeO, DIPT, and a few other substances like that, is in some ways quite similar, I believe, to the process that it went through with MDMA in the mid-80s. That's concerning that there hasn't been kind of a, I guess you could say, like progress in thinking about whether or not or how we should schedule substances um, or what process that ought to go through. Generally speaking, I think both within the psychedelic medicalization kind of conversation, as well as in general within drug policy reform worlds, there's a there's a sense that having more scientific evidence-based research before a drug gets fully banned, you know, in the absence of like an emergency of some kind would be a good thing. And I like to think that, you know, reasonable regulators agree with that. And yet it is interesting to see that there's, that there's been this move toward scheduling these substances that as far as I know, are pretty rare and not used nearly at the same levels as a lot of the other substances that we're talking about. So that is a bit of a surprise. I will say that DEA is that must definitely be in a point of evaluation about psychedelics in general right now, both because we have this massive, massively visible narrative of medicalization that's showing up at like every corner of every newsstand. You know, it's like really permeated, I think, the media consciousness, at least for sure, both because it's exciting and because it's kind of edgy and like kind of forces us to confront our assumptions. But I also know that there's a really big conversation around how to think about other kinds of uses of psychedelics. With medicine, there's like a regulatory structure that exists. There's a process and you can critique it, but it's there. With the other side of the equation where you talk about like adult regulated use or even spiritual use, we get into this category, we get into this other territory where DEA currently, for example, has uh, an application process. So after the UDV, Unidad de Vegetal um, Supreme Court case in 2006, and then a subsequent um, Santa Dima case in the Ninth Circuit in 2009, we kind of landed at this place where a religious group using psychedelics would be able to apply to the DEA for an exemption to their control substance, to the Control Substances Act, so a church or a spiritual community can use psychedelics certain psychedelic substances um, as part of their sacrament. As you can probably guess, there have been zero successful attempts to do that process in the last almost 12, 13 years, while there, although there have been attempts. And there's this big conversation now as psychedelics get more visible. Okay, yeah, there's this question about medical use. There's this thing about adult use. And there's this thing about spiritual use. And suddenly the DEA has to be the entity that makes determinations and all of this stuff. And you have this position where you have like folks within the DEA who are supposed to be making decisions about religious groups' spiritual practice. If, if I've, that sounds like a scope creep to me. <laughs> like that sounds like outside of the realm of what I understand the DEA to be doing. And what that means is that like there's this big, in line with this general approach toward drug policy reform, there's this big sense of who is actually the right people, who are actually the right people to be regulating any of these questions. 
Um, so does DEA technically have the legal authority to schedule drugs on an emergency basis if they have you know, some sort of reason? I believe legally they do. They have done that throughout history. But I think people are beginning to question, like, what's DEA's role, if any, within this drug control scheme? And like, what actually should they be doing, recognizing that the increase of interest in psychedelics is not something that's just happening in a particular subculture. You can't just like use the old excuse. It's like, oh, we're trying to control, socially control this group, which is absolutely an underlying frame of dr the drug war. When something like ayahuasca is being drank by people of all classes all over the all over the country and really all over the world in these like really really sacred environments like suddenly this doesn't look like the drug use that everyone's afraid of is it the same is it different who gets to decide anyway all that to say that like on this on this note i i, I wish and i hope that over the near future dea starts to actually get to a point where it can be using a more evidence-based metric to make scheduling decisions that's only insofar as we have a scheduling system as we are as we do now. And maybe that's out of scope for this conversation. But I feel like that broader, broader reform of even the scheduling system is probably something we should be seriously talking about in the next few years as well. Well, you guys are dreamers at MAP. So if anybody could make it happen, it would be, <laughs> it would be you and Rick. Coming soon at Esalen, Wild Pilgrimage. Backpacking journey to Esalen, April 15th to April 17th with Fletcher, Tucker, and Emily Linders embark on an intentional wilderness journey through the sublime and seldom-traveled backcountry of Big Sur, concluding at the coastal grounds of Esalen. Immerse in the wild with an intimate cohort of up to 12 participants. Practice awareness and community and learn fundamental skills to feel at home on the earth. Visit Esalen or wildtender.com slash Esalen2022 for more details and to apply. Now, I'm curious about the DEA, because the last time that we spoke, it was in between the presidential election and when Biden actually got certified. And mm -hmm. I kind of brought up, I was like, I was curious about who was, who comprised not only the DEA, but the FDA and whether mm -hmm. an incoming Democratic administration would make a mm -hmm. difference in you know the, the aims of what MAPS is trying to push forward. So yeah, curious about that, whether the, yeah. Tell me about like, does the DEA change when you get a, a new president? I do know that both FDA and DEA are considered a bit more insulated from political change. So while you might have like people who are leading, like the heads of the organizations might change with a, with a change in presidency or a change in kind of political power, there are a lot of folks within both FDA and DEA that are what you might call like career regulators or career administrators who are there kind of independent of, uh, of, of the current political leadership. So in some ways, that's a good thing because it means that it's consistency. And in the best case scenario, like with the FDA, their, their, their task is really to focus on science, not politics. Rick Doblin says this all the time and kind of we're, part of the process of medicalization is appealing to that purported goal where we're like, okay, if you're actually about science, not politics, then let's talk science. And that I think is, is helpful in the sense that it means that there's consistency of an approach within at least FDA. I do believe that because of the politicizing of kind of like the conversation around not just drug policy reform, but criminal justice and the criminal legal system in general, there may be a little bit more uh, kind of like blowing in the wind with an entity like DEA. But I do believe that there is a lot of consistency even across presidential elections because the DEA as an entity of the Department of Justice is really supposed to be, I don't want to say apolitical, that'd be kind of like obfuscation, but at least somewhat independent of partisan politics within the US. There's kind of the sense that, okay, both parties agree or ought to agree that law and order is the right thing. Now, 
I would disagree that the way that the DEA and a lot of law enforcement has has utilized its power in the past, like and continues to utilize its power, is actually not necessarily in the actual interest of law and order. It's kind of this sense that if we bring more criminalization, we'll have less chaos, which I don't see to be the thing that's happening in real life. Like I actually feel like the continued um, fixation on prohibition and criminalization has probably backfired quite a bit, both in the United States and globally. But insofar as there's like a commitment to that idea among both parties, I think the idea is that there hasn't been as much or there isn't supposed to be as much shaking up between them. Of course, I would say there's an exception there for like certain senior leadership where you do see turnover. But I believe that a lot of people within both of those entities stay consistent. Um, Once they're in, they stay, and that's like their task, you know, independently of the political winds blowing. Ismail, Texas legislature made the unlikely decision recently to become the first U.S. state to fund a psychedelic medicine trial. The study will assess the use of psilocybin to ease post-traumatic stress disorder among war veterans. I have to ask, is this as surprising to you as it is to me that this is happening from Texas? So in some ways, yes. (laughs) In some ways, yeah, because you... It's like, you know, if we were three, two years ago, you might be thinking, okay, who's going to be the first state to actually fund research into this area? Like, you know, I don't know what it would be, but it would be someone more liberal than Texas, probably, you know, or at least the assumption would be that. However, um, kind of going back to the point we were talking about earlier with respect to follow up to like measures 109 and Oregon passing in November 2020, there, like I said, there's been this huge expansion in state level efforts and also in the diversity in those kinds of efforts. You went from having just a couple options of what a state level reform system could look like, like the 109 effort in Oregon, to suddenly there being like, uh, on one end of the spectrum, you have like a full like legalized adult use system, which might look like like dispensary storefronts and cannabis. You know, of course, there's regulations and licensing and so on, but it's not it's not quite like it's sold at the corner store or just anywhere. You know, there's there are some kind of licensure regulations there. You have systems like Oregon's, which are, I would say, a little bit more conservative, where you do have storefront in the sense that you can purchase products as an, as an adult, but you can't consume them on your own. You have to consume them in the presence of another person, which makes sense if you're creating like a services, quasi-therapeutic, quasi-medical system. That person's not necessarily a, a therapist. They're just sort of a, a person who's been gone through a process to, to hold a safe space. Correct. Yeah. And that's why I'm actually pretty intentional about using services instead of therapy. A lot of the conversation on 109 in Oregon has been like it's psilocybin therapy. The reason I don't like that is because the the framework that's being created in Oregon that's currently being created that I think the initial, you know, we're hoping I'm part of a health equity subcommittee on that panel in Oregon. And uh, the draft rules were just released. We're in, you know, early February 2022. Draft rules were just released. And the kind of whole policy recommendations that will then be going to the Oregon Health Authority should be at about this summer. And while there is a training requirement for facilitators, and while many of those facilitators may also be therapists, the reason I think it's a bit misleading to call it psilocybin therapy is because there's going to be service providers who are providing all kinds of other awesome services that may not be specifically therapy like mm-hmm. that. And I don't, I'm not, I don't say that in a protectionist sense, because I actually think it is good to democratize and lower the barrier to entry to those kinds of services. And also, I think from a consumer protection perspective, it can be confusing if you're calling something therapy while another thing that's also therapy exists and they have different kinds of standards there. So I think that I'm really cautious about the language that I use personally and think that it's totally okay to call it psilocybin services and an adult use regulated system because that's what it is, as opposed to the therapy system, which as of now requires a minimum barrier to entry of a diagnosis. Whereas in Oregon, 
you don't need a diagnosis to participate. And that's like a key kind of threshold point there. So anyway, so there's that whole system. We can go more into that. And then on the other kind of, as you get more conservative, you have something like, you know, panels or working groups that are looking into potential regulatory systems. You have decriminalization efforts, which are merely about eliminating criminal penalties for possession. That looks like 519, SB 519 in California, which we might talk more about. And then you have what I would say is the most conservative end of the spectrum, which is just doing more research. And that's what Texas did. And I think that to me, that's a really solid first step for states that are more conservative, that don't have the same kind of familiarity or desire to stick their necks out as one of the first states in the union that are working on the many cool, interesting, edgy things that are also going to happen. But for states that are more conservative or that are trying to take things much more slowly, I think it makes total sense to just start with more research. And of course, Texas being the state that it is, it makes sense that the research that they're going for is geared toward veterans and people who are formerly in in the military, partially because of that political kind of um, angle there. However, I like to acknowledge whenever this topic comes up that like for MAPS, for for MDMA, for PTSD studies, for example, um, more than half of the participants are actually victims of, of violence not related to, to war. So sexual assault or physical assault or childhood abuse. Like, so it's, it's kind of this perception that veterans are like kind of the front and center, which is, I think, it, true in some ways. And also the research goes far beyond just that particular type of PTSD. Um, and to, to the point with Texas, like it makes sense that for a state like Texas, where there's kind of also a little bit of a libertarian bent, where they're like, you know, we do want to try something a little bit different. But we're not going to stick, you know, stick our necks out and create a whole system. We're going to say, let's just do more research. That to me is like the easy ask and the easy yes for a state like Texas. And I think we'll see a couple other states do something similar that's just kind of research oriented, that just looking at like a task force to make recommendations as a starting point. Um, And then from that point, you might see kind of reform build versus other states like even Oregon, which went straight into an adult use system or California with 519 that's going straight for like a decriminalized system. So. I just think it's funny because I think about the Republican state legislature in Texas being among the most odious in the, you know, in the United States. And they push forward these these bills, which are the opposite of what I imagine to be progressive. Right. I mean, one thing that I associate with psychedelics in general is just sort of like recognizing the unity, oneness and value of life in general. Yeah. You know, and you've got the Republican state legislature that are pushing forward bills that that limit people's voting rights, you know, that or abortion rights access to abortion and that endangers so many people and endangers like the, the lives uh, of people in need. And to, it just, it boggles my mind, but you know, politics is this incredibly like slippery beast that you try to define. And then you see that it slips out of the box in so many different ways. Yeah. And I'll say that I do think I agree with you and, you know, without going too much into it, I do believe that a lot of people when they have psychedelic experiences that unity consciousness is a significant element of it. And I do feel like it's important that we dispel the myth because it's ab- psychedelics as a political issue are multipartisan. It's all over the political map. I think that there's this sense that people wish was true that psychedelics made people more liberal or progressive, which I think is a myth. I do think it's true that many people do, and I think scientifically they show kind of score higher on like openness and lower on neuroticism. And there's certain research that shows that psychedelics can provide more actual openness from a person's kind of psychological perspective. And there's no question that the psychedelic use of any kind is really affected by a person's kind of cultural schema and the cultural environment in which they operate. And while psychedelics can and do disrupt certain elements of a person's psychological experience, it also reinforces some. 
So I feel like just politically speaking, it is interesting that it's multipartisan. And one one edge that I think it, the movement is coming up to, uh, MAPS included, as a member of that, like is how much do you actually seek that overlap and where do you seek it and how do you do it? I think, you know, Rick Doblin has said to me before, the nature of democracy is to find people you disagree with or find the thing you agree with among people you disagree with on other things. And it's, it's a, I, I believe that and to an extent I agree with that. And also I struggle with it because I think like figuring out like how to offer and how to bring forward these amazing kind of um, technologies and modalities to all people who've experienced harm or trauma is essential. To me, that's an essential element of like healthcare. It's like you, you treat people, doctors treat people regardless of their po- political beliefs. So, so from a treatment kind of care perspective, I feel like that that's very consistent. Doesn't matter what you believe, you deserve healing, even you know for your trauma. And politically speaking, there's an edge there because you're right. Like it's really hard to say, oh, we're gonna bring forward this amazing new modality. We're really excited about its ability to potentially treat trauma. And yet we're not going to, we're going to turn a blind eye to all these policies that perpetuate trauma all over, not just internally within the US, but around the world. And I think to me that that edge is a really big one on a personal level where we're like, how does our domestic and foreign policy as it relates to marginalized people interact with this exciting new modality about psychedelics? I like to say that even if we had the coolest, most effective, best uh, intervention of any kind, like get invent a drug, whatever, like even if the best possible out, you know, um, treatment existed for something because our healthcare system of deliver the delivery system for our healthcare is so inequitable. Even if we had a great intervention, it will increase health disparities if we don't solve the underlying problems of delivery. So we can be really excited about psychedelic therapy and still say, because we don't have universal healthcare in the United States, because there isn't access to healthcare for all people, it's actually going to increase health disparity unless there's an intentional desire to challenge that outcome. And that's part of the cost, I think, work, of working in like the system and with healthcare. And I really am encouraged by the, the attempts to really bridge some of these gaps and be like, okay, how do you actually fill these treatment gaps? So we're not just creating an, a fun, cool new modality for people who have a bunch of money. And that's like, a, that, that's a big question that I think we're constantly kind of um, grappling with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love what you're saying. And and I respect that you're pushing back against this idea that someone can take psychedelics and become more liberal. I mean, and I know there, there are a lot of people in that camp. I think Brian Pace and company over at Symposium Magazine have published around this. And uh, I intend to, to speak to those folks too. However, I'm curious, I'm curious, I want to push back against that slightly because yeah. what if trauma was at the basis of someone's political mentality? Yeah. You know, why would somebody adhere to a political party that was so dedicated towards this sort of like me and not you mentality. I think that there's a possibility that it could come from their upbringing, from the way that they've experienced the world, possibly from the way that they've experienced their family. And that, no, you, you can't take LSD in the woods by yourself and, you know, change. But what if you took psychedelics within the context of therapy and it was not for any condition, not for not for, mm-hmm. you know, PTSD necessarily, but, mm-hmm. but for the way that you experience the world, yeah. you know, that would, that would personally be, be my dream. It would be a psychedelics organization that was designed to flip voters and politicians. And it would be fantastic if it actually were. Yeah, no, I mean, well, two things. One, the trauma point I think is super important 
there. Um, and, I, you know, I, I struggle with this and I, I've seen a lot of really good discussion about this because, and to that point, to the article that you're describing with respect to um, like the far right use of psychedelics, I think that that's really important to be making that point and to be illustrating that. Um, I'm really glad that the article is out because uh, I worry about like the narrative that it just will make everything better. Um, and, and I also believe that like psychedelics can contribute to making the world a more just humane, compassionate place. And I think that's really where like Rick Doblin is coming from, right? That's like part of his whole story with maps is like, maybe if we can help work on the trauma question that we can under get to some of these underlying things that lead to these harmful behaviors. And I think that that's a really valid angle. And also I think the fact that someone has experienced trauma ought, should not excuse them from the, for the harm that they caused or the harm that they um, might uh, bring forward in the world. And I think that this is an edgy thing because to some extent, I don't want it, it, to, it's kind of like one of those things where you say, well, if everyone's experienced trauma, then no one's experienced trauma. Like what is trauma? Like what is that thing? And that, that causes that. And I think that especially when you're talking about, this is edgy territory, but when you're talking about American society, especially I would say the more kind of like the, the American society that's really born out of the kind of puritanical origins of the country where you have to like earn your right to heal. You have to earn the things that you've done. You can't just get stuff for free, like this kind of takers versus makers ideology that's really, really permeated, especially the Republican Party. But I think it's very much in the Democratic Party as well. I don't think that we get to excuse anyone from this idea that, um, that that's how things operate. I do, I do believe that there's something to be said for like the, the, generations and generations of repression that have led to like American society as we understand today, sexual repression, pleasure repression, spiritual repression, all of these different things. And I think it's so ironic that a country that was founded on, you know, the principles of religious freedom is now essentially like on this like neo neo evangelical global policing thing that like we've been doing for the last few decades, including definitely not limited to, but certainly including like our, our efforts in the Middle East over the last 20 plus years. And, and I think like where, where and how psychedelics or psychedelic consciousness more broadly can interrupt that is a big question that I have. And unfortunately, one of my big concerns is the way that the system has incentivized remaining in the adversarial area. And I, in the same way that someone can have an amazingly open experience in a, in, in a psychedelic experience, if they go right back to their day to day, like that stuff doesn't always last. Like those changes must be integrated and incorporated in order for them to really have a transformative effect on that person's long-term life and behavior. So I think that that's why going back to the very beginning, like I really resist the silver bullet thing where I'm like, actually psychedelics can be huge catalysts and tremendously valuable in people's self-understanding. And also they, they, they require more support, like the plants or the molecules won't do it themselves. Yeah. But, but, but you all are, are not pushing forward a plan of just take psychedelics. It's psychedelics with therapy. Correct. Yeah. With therapy and also with cultural change. That's it's like it's, it's psychological therapy in that modality. Absolutely. And then there's also an element where the work toward education and harm reduction and decriminalization and all these other things that is also part of the macro cultural change that would then hold the therapy. The therapy is just one element of this larger thing. And just one last point, you were talking about using psychedelics for like non-medical or non-diagnosed uses. Um, the term for that is elective use. And I do in the, sen in the sense that I don't need a diagnosis to have a therapist. Like I don't have to say like, oh, I have a thing. I can just go get a therapist. Right. Similarly, it would be interesting to see if in the future medicalized psychedelics could be offered for people to your point, that are just like wanting to work on themselves, you know, personal growth or personal development. They don't have a diagnosis, but 
I do, I do think from an, uh, like an equity perspective, insofar as there's a medical system, making sure that we're make, creating frameworks to treat the most impacted people is a good thing. And we should be simultaneously fighting for decriminalization and regulated adult use. So then people who aren't highly traumatized, who have a diagnosis either way, can also find access in a safe and responsible way without having to go to the street, without having to risk adulterated drugs and so on. Part of the mission of Esalen and the mission of, of the human potential movement in general was creating this atmosphere where so-called healthy normals mm-hmm. could, could work on themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and the same thing for me, I, I go to a therapist, I go, I go once every week or once every two weeks, and I don't have a diagnosis of, of PTSD though. Sure. Mm-hmm. I've incurred trauma in my life and that's often w- what I work with, mm-hmm. but I would love to be able to use psychedelics within the framework of therapy because of all the psychedelic journeys that I've taken in my life, none of them have been with the therapist. And the last mm-hmm. one that I took was only a couple months ago. Wait, it was only a month ago. Mm-hmm. And it was nothing, man. It was nothing. I, w- I went out to the beach, you know, in Big Sur, I smoked a couple of cigarettes. I had a playlist on my, my phone, I had <laughs> all these albums to listen to. It was nothing. And, it, and there was, there was this element that was telling me like, the, the next time you need to do this, you need to do this with a mission of understanding yourself with the help of, of a therapist. It was a great learning for me. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but you're, you, you mentioned yeah. de- decriminalization again. And in our remaining time, uh, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about SB 519 in California. This was a bill that would decriminalize many psychedelics, including MDMA, mescaline, LSD, ketamine, DMT, and ibogaine. Yes. So first off, ketamine was removed from that list. Um, we were asked to take it off in the assembly health committee uh, in the fall of last year, which I think is terribly unfortunate, by the way, I want to record my opposition to that decision because ketamine is actually one of the drugs on that list that's most likely to be adulterated. I would say ketamine, MDMA, LSD are probably the highest on that list. You have lots of things being sold as LSD that aren't really LSD. You have tons of adulterants in MDMA. It's notorious, ecstasy is notoriously uh, adulterated. And ketamine is now, because it's like kind of a classic, especially when it's used on the street, kind of another white powder, it's increasingly common for it to be adulterated with other dissociatives. And in some recent cases, fentanyl, which is really scary um, for a lot of reasons. So yeah, so that the approach with 519, and really I would say a lot of decriminalization approaches is that at the very, very least, there should not be criminal penalties for the personal possession and use of certain substances and maybe even all substances. That is increasingly popular a position, again, in a multipartisan way, not because everyone's like wanting everyone to do drugs, but because they're realizing that the approaches that we've taken to counter that use has just utterly failed. Um, whether you look at prohibition, incarceration, whatever, like all of those, uh, the education, you know, of drug use, I was definitely part of the part of the dare generation. It got terrible education around drugs. I had to learn everything from Arrowwood when I was 15 on the internet. And I, I think that there's this sense that at the very least, we should be able to do that. And I think 519 really tries to go for this first step of just eliminating criminal penalties for personal possession and use. It also creates a commission that would study the regulated use of any of these substances. So I could see, for example, a two-year process being done with this uh, commission that would come out with findings like, we should have better education, we should do public safety announcements. You know, a lot of people don't know that mixing ketamine and alcohol is dangerous, which is really useful when a lot of people are using ketamine, probably more than ever before, in like social settings. 
So small, like small, but critical information like that really makes a difference in helping people um, use more safely, um, recognizing that they're going to use no matter what. The task force or the commission, like, will, I think we'll be able to come out with recommendations like what does education look like? What does what do effective harm reduction services look like? I would like it to also look into um, unarmed crisis response and like what it would mean to have, you know, a really well-funded agency that could provide psychological support to people in crisis. As you can probably guess, that's not just useful for people who are tripping too hard on the streets. Like we are absolutely in a mental health crisis. There's people experiencing mental health crisis on the street in every major city, for sure in California, likely all over the country. Um, and our, our law enforcement agencies are completely unequipped to do that. They're not prepared. And many law, I've heard more and more from law enforcement agencies that they're actually not wanting to be the people to intervene in mental health issues, not only because sometimes it results in violence, which is bad for everybody, but also because that's not really what they're trained to do. So you see examples like CAHOOTS in Eugene, Oregon, or STAR in Denver, Colorado, these programs that are trying to send out unarmed, uh, very well-trained mental health crisis response counselors. I think that's the kind of thing we'd really want to see come out of a, you know, recommendations coming out of a commission like that. And then it's also meant to look at, yeah, what would regulated adult use look like? So if we did have a regulated system for the use of psilocybin or mescaline or any of these substances, what would that actually look like? And I think I have ideas, but I... I think that for these big public health questions, it's actually really important to have a lot of input from a lot of different sources, mm -hmm. because I actually don't think there's a really clear, obvious, best answer. Like, I like the idea of moving toward regulation, because then you can have quality control, you can control aspects of the supply chain, you can control like labor and worker protections. There's a lot of stuff that you can do when you bring something into the light. But how do you do that? Like we have a lot of questions, I think, about what's the safest and best way, in what order. Is there like a tiered approach? Do you legalize all drugs all at once or do you maybe do a few at a time and then kind of like ease into it? So 519 is really just an attempt to say, let's decriminalize the personal possession and use of these substances. Let's recognize that it's safer for people to use in groups. There's a concept in there. The original concept was social sharing that permitted people who were possessing like medium amounts to share with their friends. That language was really not liked by uh, members of the legislature, so it was cut and instead replaced with this idea of aggregate amounts. So now each person, there's like a safe harbor amount um, under the current language that if you're below a certain amount, the person can possess it. If you're a person that's facilitating on behalf of other people, you can actually possess their amounts. And think about a substance like ayahuasca. Like, I don't walk around with like my ounce of ayahuasca on my hip, right? Like people, you have a facilitator who's trained and whose job it is to hold the medicine. And they then, in, in a way, they're holding on behalf of other people. They then, you know, offer the medicine, this ceremony. And really, we're trying to encourage this idea that group use is safe for use. That's not to say that experiences like yours, solo, aren't important. I think that they're great for a lot of people. And especially if we're talking about decriminalization, all of the media, da, 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 we really do want to encourage people to use together when they can, just because that's usually, usually a, one way to avoid certain kind of more extreme outcomes. Um, so SB 519 right now is paused in the Assembly Appropriations Committee. It made it through the Public Safety Committee of both the House and the Senate, or the Assembly and the Senate, and made it through the Health Committee of both the Assembly and the Senate. Um, and now we're on the last committee in the Assembly, after which if it passes, it would go to a floor vote, a confirmatory vote from the Senate because there were changes made in the Assembly, and then to the governor. So, you know, I think it's going to get heard next in May or June of this year, of 2022. Um, and so this summer will be a big one, I think, for 519. And we'll see if either it'll go through because we are able to, you know, persuade the legislature that it is a good step, or we might have to make changes. Maybe it doesn't work and we have to go back to, to the drawing board. But there's no question that there's a lot of lessons being learned across the country and in California on 
what does the ideal policy reform look like for psychedelics? Ismail Ali, it's such a pleasure to talk with you, brother. I, I learned so much from you every time that we speak. <laughs> Please come on the show another time. Um, I want to keep up with what's happening in this ever-changing landscape. And just a, a final question for you would be, yeah. what's the best way to, to watch this as it unfolds? Yeah, yeah. It's, there's, it's interesting because there's a lot of different sources of information that are kind of all over. And um, I don't know if I have a great answer of like where to go, but I will say to be wary and to pay attention now that there's a lot of money in this space. There's a lot of moneyed interest in controlling the narrative of how psychedelics are brought forward. So I think that there's a lot of good sources um, of news. Like I, I, I do believe that besides the silver bullet thing, the media is trying to do a decent, uh, trying to do a good job of like pre presenting like a balanced approach. Um, but I would say that like generally, when something seems too good to be true, like look through it and definitely pay attention to where the commercial interests might lie. I think that's a big point and i think that it's really maybe naively optimistic but really important to to believe that a system of creating access to psychedelics should really be decoupled as much as possible from kind of the profit motives that are so endemic in other um industries especially in pharma but certainly in other industries and i don't know exactly how to do that in the perfect way i think that that's going to be a big ongoing question for the movement and the ecosystem to be answering including maps um, as we move forward. I know that's not a super satisfying answer, but I would just say like, have a critical eye. Like, you know, I'm excited about it too, for sure. Um, but I think it's really important to be skeptical, to be critical and to be thinking like, you know, whose interest does this really bring forward? And like, where do we, where, where do I, you know, as an individual fit in my own perspective around this? And, you know, don't let prohibitionist narratives or over-commercialized narratives like run the day. Ismail Ali, thank you so much for your time today. Now get out there and continue fighting the good fight for us. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sam. I really appreciate this conversation as always. Look forward to next time too. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you're liking this show, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And hey, while you're at it, share on social media. Until next time, be well. <laughs>